0: This is Rebecca Buchanan, host of New Books Network, New Books in Popular Culture, and today I am here with Shaina Maskell, who is the author of Politics of Sound, the Washington D.C. Hardcore Scene, 1978 to 1983. Shaina, thanks for being here. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I would hope you could start off by just talking a little bit about how this book came to be and why you wanted to write about this particular period of time during um, in DC's history and hardcore history.
1: Yeah, so this actually started, as um, I feel like so many of these books do, as a dissertation. So um, I was getting my PhD in American Studies um, at University of Maryland. I had just come back to the East Coast from a few years in Los Angeles. Um, And so there was this real kind of, you know, not just like nostalgia, but like, there's such a cultural difference between the East Coast and the West Coast. And there is no hierarchy here. I love them both in different ways. But when I came back here, and I was thinking about what do I want to, you know, do my dissertation on? I mean, music is, my favorite thing. I love music. I've always been into music. I've collected vinyl since I was in high school. You know, my parents would play music all the time. My dad would play guitar. I play guitar. And so, I, you know, I was thinking about, you know, what kind of music really represents where I'm from. I grew up um, in Fairfax, Virginia, which is a, a suburb right outside of Washington, D.C. Um, and, you know. Hardcore punk just seemed like a natural fit. It is a music that, for people who know it, is unbelievably meaningful and important and significant, but rarely gets attention kind of outside of of the punk scene and definitely not as much from academia. Um, And so I wanted to not approach it because there's been some amazing things written about punk from like an oral history perspective. Um, Dance of Days is like the DC hardcore Bible, you know, and, and there are some other American hardcore has a lot about the DC scene, but I wanted to take, you know, my academic lens to it. And because I was in American studies, I was I'm really interested in, in intersectionality. So like, how can we understand this this music and this music scene as a part of and, you know, affected by, but also as a construction of things like race, class, and
0: gender. That's a perfect segue to uh, the next question I had for you, which is you sort of situate us in D.C., right? So it is not like you're saying, just like, here's punk um, and here's hardcore. So can you give us a little bit of background of this time period, the late 70s, early 80s in D.C., and how that gave rise to these bands and this scene?
1: Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think it's... <laughs> D.C. is such a weird place. Right. Um, So many of us that are here, no one else grew up around here. You know, when you find people, they're always transplants. They come here because this is the seat of the federal government. Um, And there's a huge amount of of jobs here. And so there has always been this very interesting divide um, between kind of, you know, those people who live in DC or, or the suburbs around DC, um, and those who come here for jobs. Um, and so that was very true, I think also, you know, in, in the 70s and, and 80s. Um, and so you had, you know, these young people who were who were in school there with their parents who were working on local newspapers, who were working in, in the federal government as well, and kind of, you know, jobs in and around DC. Um, and there, you know, DC has a very kind of, controversial history in terms of its relationship with the federal government. It didn't have home rule for so long, and still the purse strings are controlled by Congress. And so there's this idea that there is power centered in D.C., But it's not for those who live in D.C. or not for those who are from D.C. It is those who come and work for it or who are supposed to represent, you know, these other interests. And I think that was very much a part of what was boiling, you know, in this youth movement was this lack of agency. Right. This lack of power. Um, And it also had to do, I think, very much with the time period in terms of the administration. So you have. These young people in the hardcore scene, their parents were the hippie generation, right? And they were very influenced and, and kind of aware of those failures um, and, and the fact that so much of that social change that that generation, you know, fought for and sought, was ultimately doomed to failure by many things, um, including drugs, which which ends up being part of this this, this straight edge movement. Um, but I think also, you know, just this idea that government's not going to really make that kind of change. Right. And so there is a little bit of pessimism. Um, And that also goes with, you know, the end of the Carter administration, which was pretty impotent (laughs) and the things that were going on in in, in that administration. And of course, which led then to Ronald Reagan Um, and with Ronald Reagan, this, this, you know, cowboy Hollywood star who brought about this, you know, now very nostalgic notion of, you know this dawning and this new morning in America, but really those kind of conservative values were very much at odds with what these young people were feeling.
0: And so we have, right? We have this—you you sort of set the scene, and there—and it's a short scene too, right? It's not decades, uh, right? right? Um, but you have five bands that you sort of focus on and talk about as. As the crux of this scene in space. So can you talk a little bit about each of those bands, uh, just to give us that context for them as well?
1: Yeah. And, and I will I will preface this by saying, you know, hardcore didn't kind of arrive fully formed, sprung from, right? Like Bad Brain's Head, which are like kind of the grandfathers of hardcore. There was kind of a first, first wave punk slash new wave hunks seen in, in Washington, D.C. And there was a very big divide against those individuals, right, who were a little bit older and then these kind of young upstarts, right, who were fed up with, this kind of mainstream punk sound. And that had to do with right the kind of commercialization of the sex pistols, um, you know, the Ramones, and, and this also kind of commodification of punk um, through New Wave, Elvis Costello, and, and things like that. And so you had um the definitely the grandfathers of the scene were bad brains. And bad brains are incredible and incredibly important for, for a few reasons. Uh, the kind of the primary, well I don't know if the primary two main reasons. One, they were incredible musicians, right? Their punk is a genre that is known not for technical virtuosity, right? Like that's the point. You don't have to be good at it. It's about, as people say, the three-chord democracy. Here are three chords, here's a guitar, pick it up, you have a band. Um, And so there is kind of a pride that goes along with this kind of amateur musicianship, but bad brains were not like that. They wanted to, to graft that technical skill, speed, um, right, and and volume um, uh, with kind of the I don't give a fuckness, right, of punk. Along with that and inseparable from that, bad brains were Black. And this was really important because with very few exceptions, they're one of the only Black hardcore bands and definitely all Black hardcore bands in D.C. And so they were... They first kind of established hardcore punk, started playing. And it was the young teenagers, Ian McKay, MacKay um, and and Henry Rollins, right? Who went and saw them play and were like, holy crap, <laughs> I I wanna do this, right? And and befriended them. And so HR um and and Ian actually, you know, they would share um guitars, right? And and so I kind of set the scene for um, the, the Slinkies, who then became the Teen Idols, who then became probably the most um, important or recognized band in hardcore, which is Minor Threat. Um, and Minor Threat was, was um, is associated primarily with Ian McKay. Um And again, because he was a part of these bands with, with Jeff Nelson, right, as well, Lyle Pressler and and Brian Baker, it was about their music, which was so much modeled off of Bad Brains, right? They saw their technical skills and says like, oh, hey, we can actually use that, right? And and many of the critics said, oh, there's this huge kind of jump from the teen idols to Minor Threat and like these boys can play their instruments now. <laughs> um, but also their subject matter, right? And And that is also what they're really known for, which is Um, You know, Ian and and the band, although Ian has become the unwilling face, I would say the unwilling leader, um, of Straight Edge, right, of this philosophy that was embedded in the music and then a subculture within a subculture, within a subculture of Straight Edge, which is, of course, abstinence for, for the listeners who don't know, abstinence from drugs, alcohol, nicotine, and kind of promiscuous sex, right? Sex is saved for meaning and loving relationships. And so their music... Um, you know, really became an emblem for it. not only disaffected youth, but disaffected youth that felt that way because of how youth was being constructed in the mainstream, right? That young people were just, you know, drinking and getting high. Um, both things that were happening at Wilson High School where they attended, but also was in popular culture as well. Um, and then I, and those are probably the the two heaviest hitters. Um, but I, I, you know, and I think there can be some great debates and arguments and probably will be about all the bands that I, I was not able to include. But to me you know state of alert SOA um, it was you know occurred for a very very short amount of time and is probably most well known because we have Henry Garfield who becomes, When he leaves D.C. and goes to California for Black Flag, Henry Rollins. Um, And this was, you know, Ian McKay's best friend um, and, you know, a fellow kind of punk in terms of he used to be kind of he acted as a roadie for a while for the Teen Idols. And then realized, like, well, all these other people are playing kind of shitty music and not doing well. I can do this, too. And SOA, I mean, their songs are Really short, super furious, and have what we've come to expect from Rollins—this kind of militaristic, um, kind of bombacity and anger with it—and um, and all already kind of this anti-authoritarianism um, that gets—and and not only black flag music, but kind of in punk writ large. And then the two other bands, um, Faith, Right Hat was was with. Ian's younger brother Alec McKay, and they were really interesting because they brought a little bit more of like a heavy metal sound to their music, which is kind of where hardcore end up transforming into. Um, and they also were quite involved in the in the straight edge ethos and subculture. And then Government Issue, which GI um, was fronted by John Stab, who's just like hilarious, was, was a hilarious character, right? And would shave his head, you know, in, in in front of the audience. And they had more overtly political songs than kind of any of the other bands who really would draw their material from the personal rather than the political. And and Government Issue did as well, but they had, you know, a Hey Ronnie song, right? They had some music that did um, very specifically address politics. They also had the most lineup changes. I think it's it's like 21 in total. And so there were always a kind of various states of not only membership, but sound. But during that kind of the pinnacle years, what I call the pinnacle years of 79 to 83, they were very much enmeshed in that, in that hardcore sound and scene.
0: And, and you've sort of, so you set us up and then you divided your book into sort of two parts, right? And the and they build on one another, but I think setting up and talking a bit, and, and you mentioned this about, um, the race, the class and the gender, um, and that is instrumental in creating this space. And you talked a bit about bad brains being like a, a band of black punk right in a time where that really was not exist. And even now, right. We could argue yeah. that not right. Um, but, so can you talk a little bit about that sort of, the the role, we'll start with race maybe, because I think mm-hmm. you start with race, right? So let's mm-hmm. start with like how you see the, you know, that role of race and whiteness and what's going on in this scene. Um, yeah,
1: guy? and I think, I mean, I think as you said, right, it's interrelated and I talk about it a lot from the musical standpoint, but that musical standpoint can't be kind of extricated from this larger cultural standpoint. But, but, so I'll start with the musical and that is, you know, in the book, I kind of talk about bad brains, heart—you know—sound of hardcore as this evolution of traditional black music, um, specifically through jazz and blues, right? And I think part of the reason that—and and, and I'm, I will—I'll t- I'll give the argument as to why I think that—but I think part of the reason why that musical tradition is so important is because. Jazz and blues historically have been an assertion of black identity, right? Have been a assertion of um, black agency and self in the face of marginalization. And bad brains were, you know, in a sea of whiteness. Now, of course, DC itself was chocolate city, right? And, and was primarily black. They actually came from right outside of DC. But the punk scene was by and far um, white faces right, with few exceptions. And so their assertion of this musical tradition seems to be a response to the whiteness of that scene. So they're already kind of feeling marginalized. And they enter this scene, which is about bringing together marginalized people, right? And so they have this insider hardcore identity, but still as, you know, Black hardcore kids, they still have this outsider identity. And so I think, you know, their kind of reinvention of hardcore through this technical virtuosity is very much a response to that. And and this is how it links back to jazz, because I really see it as, you know, the bebop musicians, um, you know, of, of the jazz era. And I, my dad was a huge jazz fan <laughs> and my mom was not. So I grew up listening to jazz with my dad and going to concerts. My mom was like, mm-hmm, nope, not going to do it. And so I, you know, I, I also grew up on John Coltrane and Miles Davis, right? And and all of these musicians um, and what I loved about them, right? Was this idea that they could improvise, right, that they could on the fly come up with these kind of riffs on the the primary melody. And they would do this in order to kind of, not only show their chops, but to kind of challenge, right? This white mainstream culture who was like, oh yeah, jazz, like we like that, right? Um, After of course, you know, America had poo-pooed jazz and said, you know, this is barbaric and this is not a good representation of blackness. And then once Europe said, oh, this is great. They're like, oh yeah, that's ours. All us. It's it's an American music. And, and 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 Bebop musicians were a response to that, right? It was kind of a middle finger. Like, really? You like jazz? What about this? Can you play this? Um, and I think that I think that brains do the same thing, right? They're unbelievable speed. I mean, they're unparalleled kind of playing, and everyone kind of still agrees on this. It's not really that debatable that they were masters at this. And to me, that's kind of their their way of asserting this this marginalized identity, and, and similarly, this idea of the blues. And I mean, H. R. and his voice is, it's so emotional, it's so laden. It really, to me, recalls a lot of those blues singers, right? And the pain and the anger that they had at this, you know, personal and social marginalization. So I really think, you know, the music was a reaction to the scene. And in fact, Godfrey started out as as a jazz band right they were trying to do jazz fusion um as mind power and did one concert where hr didn't even face the audience and it was a disaster (laughs) and and they were like okay let's try this punk thing so we can kind of see you know the way that this like black musical tradition gets reinvented and rethought about through hardcore
0: yeah i that's one thing i really appreciate right we often that that music is not a straight linear right line um that it comes and goes you know people are like punk is dead i'm like no it's something different now right like it, n- nothing's ever dying um but thinking about especially in the context of dc right and how um even being in that space and the history of that space really informs how these bands come to be and how they and and defines their music whether it's whether it is um on their part something they, they are doing consciously, or it's sort of this unconscious space. So, like you, and then another thing that, be right, so we have this role of race, and then we also have class, um, that middle class, right? We often think of punk as being this very white, middle class, boy, masculine space. Um, and so can you talk a little bit about how you sort of situated that and, and looked at, at that um. Yeah
1: yeah you know I think I always feel that class is kind of the forgotten vector of difference right because in America right we're like oh no you know American dream social mobility, rags to riches pull yourself up from your bootstraps We you know we have these kind of myths about class and we use race instead as our primary kind of lens through which to see things. Um, but yeah, I mean class becomes, Really important and interesting, and and I mean punk absolutely historically has been this kind of middle class, um, da, uh, kind of performed by middle class boys or, or or men, and I think it actually to me is very reminiscent of, of the hippies, right? And I and I talked about earlier kind of how these young um, men saw the failures of, of the hippie movement, but I think that rang true because right, hippies were that first subculture that came from the middle class and made a conscious choice to reject the trappings of that class and kind of downward pass right they were like we reject conspicuous consumption and they had the privilege to do that right because when you're poor you don't have the privilege to do that right you're just trying to make ends meet um and so there is kind of this privilege of middle class of saying I don't want to do that. I don't agree to, um, you know, to reinforce these class-based standards. Um, And DC, of course, is just, uh, I don't know, I want to say perfect example, but that makes it seem good. I don't know if it's a good thing, (laughs) but I mean, DC has always had this disparity, right, of class. I mean, again, you can go down Massachusetts Avenue, right, and Ambassador, you know, Embassy Row and just these, ridiculously gigantic houses, right? Georgetown, um, very close to to where I am now, um, is just, you know, there's no metro there because they don't want the riffraff coming in, right? It's just all of these shops and these townhouses, townhouses that are worth millions and millions of dollars that were, and, you know, Georgetown literally was built by and inhabited by slaves early on. And so, um, D.C. is so small. And I think part of that size makes those disparities in class even more evident, that they were just huge pockets of poverty, almost always intersected by the Anacostia River, right? And, and you had poor um, black and brown people on that one side and, and the middle and, and upper class wealthy on, on the other. Um, and so you did have hardcore punk. And, and, and I think sometimes it's it seems like it's a kind of a negative. I don't think it's negative to acknowledge that they had this privilege, right? Like as not only these white bodies, but these white middle class bodies, they had this privilege to resist in this certain way, right? Like, and I think this is where right, Bad Brains it becomes, it becomes really interesting too, because generally we associate like, you know, particularly black men with hostility and anger and aggression, right? And, but white men are allowed... As we have seen in these last right um, four to six years, allowed to do this right is their it is their God given right to do this. And so I think you know I think that um, minor threat and, and faith and SOA and government issue and all these other bands you know were able to engage in that kind of resistance that sound resistance that resistance as sound in large part because they came from that comfort of middle class and they were taken seriously, or they, well, they weren't taken seriously, but they they got the chance to take themselves seriously by recording. I mean, recording, you know, is such a privilege to have things memorialized in that way. And so there's such an interesting kind of um, contradiction that was going on in that scene of this middle class privilege, and then this very intentional kind of downward passing, right? Like, we're going to play raw, we're going to not, you know, there's no use of upper-class um, instruments like the violin and the, the viola and these things that we associate with, with a higher class. And even the kind of um, more amateurish way that they played, although I would argue my Threat plays quite well, <laughs> technically well, um, it has something to do with this kind of attempt to present a rawness, right? This kind of um, minimalism, no-frills consumption, right? That gets um, associated not with the middle class.
0: Right. And and along with that, like you mentioned this role of um, the white male being able to sort of be angry, right? Gender mm-hmm. and masculinity play such a strong role. And as someone who's very interested in women and feminism and punk, mm-hmm. right? Um, and that there are and there are people who sort of came out, you know, there are females who came out of D.C. in that scene. But that gender role is so and masculinity is so important in that space.
1: Yeah. I mean, I don't know that we could pick apart anything that we just talked about and it wouldn't be linked to masculinity in some way, right? I mean, obviously masculinity is the default for everything. And so in that way, it's associated with everything. Um, And there were, of course, women in the scene and there were women who were important to the scene. But I think, you know, often those roles were in the traditional gender roles, right? You had women as photographers, women as um, you know behind the scene putting together things at the discord house for the for the albums to send them out you didn't have women being given that voice that literal voice right and an absolutely riot girl right that emerged from there was that reaction but you know the way the that hardcore the sound of hardcore the performance of hardcore with slam dancing right with even kind of dress all of it pointed to this kind of Hypermasculinity, masculinity And I think, again, like that is very much of the times, right? Late 70s, early 80s, you have this backlash against women's rights and, and the women's movement um, and, and this idea of feminism, right? Which is a dirty word. Well, still is to many considered a dirty <laughs> word. And then you have, you know, right in DC, uh, the emblem of power being all white men, right? Like you had very small little inroads that were happening, um, you know, Sandra Day O'Connor, and, and and there was like a couple of maybe one uh, senator who was a woman. But in general, you know, power is always linked to the notion of masculinity. And there is a reaction to that, I think, there's a reinforcement to that that's going on and I don't think it's conscious. Right. And, and I was really, you know, privileged to talk to Ian um, a number of times throughout this book. And he really always wanted to make clear, like we embraced women, like we did not think of it as um, you know, as a male club or an all boys club. And I think that's probably true, but I think that right consciously or otherwise, there was this hyper-masculinity that's equated with power, and so that gets replicated and reproduced in the music in the scene, okay. particularly when you're in reaction to, you know, the Georgetown military punks, right, and those with, you know, federal power, the armed, you know, the armed forces, all these things that are going around in D.C. that are actual corporeal physical power.
0: Yes, and and that it kind of leads into right that second part. You talk about some of the cultural production, the DIY, the straight mm-hmm. edge, and it leads into like yes, like so even embracing women. Um, there's still some very misogynistic um, ways in which um, the scene operates. I, I you know I look at zines, so I think of even some of the names of those mm-hmm. zines and um, and some of those ways in which that even if it's a joke or even if it's thought of to be a joke or tongue in cheek, it still comes out. Um, But one of the, Mm -hmm. you know, so we have this music, but they've also, it's not only the music, right. They really did create a scene. And um, Mm -hmm. so I'd love for you to talk a bit about that. You know, I mean, we have discord records, they have the discord Mm -hmm. house, um, but how did they, you know, talk a little bit about how you really see this, Coming together as a scene and not just bands.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it's one of the most uh, kind of incredible things about you know punk at large, but hardcore specifically is that hardcore across the country did have these scenes, right? And and this idea of scene is very much premised on this kind of like you know postmodern way of understanding that there is no not only high and low culture but there is no you know singer and then audience right there's not the the band and then the fans that it's about creating this community um and i think that you know they part of it had to do with spatial relations right these the, the dc hardcore scene really came from like three high schools in dc which there were only really like not very many more than that. I mean, there were a few more, right? And the other side of that, of course, is go-go that was going on in DC, right? Um, the go-go scene. And so, but for the kind of, you know, for there was such a small, the city is so small that it really did allow for these kids to be in constant kind of contact with one another. Part of the other thing was that whenever these bands would try to play at kind of a more traditional venue, they nearly always got, band right? Um, so as you know, Bad Brains, one of their most famous songs, banned in DC, right? Is that they people were like, You're never coming back here, right? And so they these venues were often done in the homes of people in the scene, right? In their basements, um, in community centers. And because of this DIY ethos, not only and so I'll I'll say two things about the DIY, do it yourself. One is that as as we're talking about with class there was this very conscious rejection of the music industry right and like that was what was wrong with mainstream punk right but also kind of the the history of music um as a whole and so there was this you know creation of discord really as a way of just getting their music out right like the teen idols had um, Ian's first band with, with Jeff Nelson had they had toured and they had some leftover money. They're like, Well, we can like five hundred dollars, like we'll split it, or we could like try to put out a record. And everyone's like, Yeah, sure. Let's put out a record. And and everything else came from that. Well, let's put out our friends' records, right? And so there was this again, you see that kind of class based thing, like this is worth preserving, right? This is worth people hearing. But it was also so much of this idea of community, right? Let's do this together. Um, and so these teenagers went and, right, rented this house, got this house that I now live a block from, which is, which is always a treat. My kids and I are always walking by, right, um, along with all of the people who journey to, to the Discord house to take photos in front of it right and and they had everyone from the scene, not just from the bands, that were you know getting the orders from across the country that were putting together these albums that were stealing cardboard outside of the dumpster of the Seven Eleven to to mail these these records from, and so all of that kind of brought about the sense of community and of course, that second part was more practical of DIY, which is that no one else would do it for them. Right? Like no one else thought that this was worthwhile. No one else thought that this kind of music was financially viable, but also had any kind of cultural or social value. And so it was of necessity that they formed, you know, this DIY community and, and this ethos that went along with it.
0: Right. And I think when, one thing that's really, um, I think important about looking at this time and looking at DC and these bands is because they kind of helped to bring that to other scenes, right? Mm-hmm. They were these bands that would travel. I just interviewed um, uh, two uh, punks, two men who put wrote Punks and Peoria, talking about the Peoria mm-hmm. scene, but even talking about when Minor Threat came through and they were saying, We don't have any money, you know, like Ian like, being like, Here, take my money, right? Like, so like, and, and that was like an important, like that, like that band who was so important coming through and doing Mm -hmm. that, right? But they have done this, right? You know, like, even when you talk about Henry Rollins moving across the country and bringing things to LA and things to California, you know, California area. Mm -hmm. So I think, right, like, this DC scene is important to see how... How to do, I mean, not everything is right, right? But, you know, again, like, that's not the right word, but how to, like, how to do this, like you're talking about, with no book to tell you how. Yeah,
1: no, I think you're totally right. You know, there's always kind of, you know, I, I think of it somewhat, although I don't think it's completely accurate, as like spontaneous invention, right? Like, happening at the same time you had it in LA and you had it in DC. But these were really the first two kind of hardcore scenes, and particularly. For the East Coast, but I love you know in Midwest absolutely Texas too, right? Like the DC scene were kind of these like elder statesmen, which is weird to be talking about for like 18 year olds, right? Because, but they were the elder statesmen, and and and, and even though there was some ferocious kind of territorial, right? But um, I mean actual physical fist fights often, right, with the New York scene and the Philly
0: scene and. Um, <laughs> I lived in oh Philly, my... so the ah! Philly, uh, like, I grew up in the Midwest, but I lived in Philly for a long time, right? Yeah. Uh, my kids were born. So, so the Philly okay. fight is, yes, it is, legendary, it is still, right? yes, very <laughs> legendary. Were you there? Who was there? Who threw the first, like, why did it happen? Yes, yes. Yeah,
1: absolutely. <laughs> but like, even, and there were tons of that, and there was, um, you know, and, and, and bad brains had a lot of issues, right? With homophobia and and HR was a drug addict and would steal money. But despite all of this, absolutely, I think there was this, this kind of familial structure, right? That was very much a part of that DIY, right? We're a community. We help each other. Um, and Ian is just like ridiculously generous with his time and with everything else. I mean, he'll talk to anyone, which is just incredible, but he does that with, you know, musicians and, you know, lowly academics like me and, you know, fans that, you know, that come to the house. I mean, he's always willing to do that. And I think that is so much in that spirit, right. Of like this non elitist kind of spirit. Like we are all together doing this. There's not this kind of division between us.
0: And he has figured out how to continue that for literally 40, right. Decades and decades (laughs) and decades. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, 40 years. And, and he also becomes really important, whether you want to or not, like whether he, whether he wants this title or not as like (laughs) founding straight edge, right? Like you have this DIY, but then a really important part of creating a scene and you mentioned it a little earlier, but I'd love you to talk a little bit more about straight edge in that role.
1: Yeah. I mean, you know, he always likes to say it's a personal philosophy. It's not a political philosophy, but of course, um, and and you know as feminists you know the personal is political right and uh, and absolutely he doesn't like to be thought because of the things we we're just talking about this kind of communal you he doesn't want to be thought of as a leader right like he would he would really hate that but his ideas and thoughts on on straight edge and of course the famous song <laughs> straight edge and 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 there are others out of stuff as well became these rallying anthems for these young people who wanted to assert their agency, not through a kind of cultural depiction of the vagaries of youth, right? Um, And I think, I mean, I think many things about, about serenity, but I think it's such an interesting assertion of self because this is going on down the road, from the Reagan White House and the Just Say No. I mean, I very much remember, I was a little too young for the hardcore scene here in DC. I grew up more on Fugazi, um, you know, uh, Ian's later band, but I very much remember Just Say No campaigns and people come in and, and you know, then, this, this is your brain on drugs and it's a fried egg in the pan. Um, and so in some ways, Straight Edge is, is, is baffling, right? It's like, oh really, you, uh, you align with, with, with the Reagans and, and Just Say No? Um, but of course that wasn't what was going on. It was, it was instead a generational, a statement about the young people that they saw in high school or, you know, going to concerts and seeing people passed out and like not even getting to remember seeing these famous bands. It was a way of saying, you know, I am asserting my, my consciousness and my awareness above everything else. Um. And I do. I talk about the the book. It is a very gendered kind of concept, right? Particularly back in the day. But you know, women <laughs> weren't supposed to have sex at all, and definitely not promiscuous sex. So saying like no promiscuous sex, well, no shit. Like that's already that was already on the table. It was men who were supposed to, um, you know, and re- rewarded still in many in many areas for having you know, as much sex as humanly possible, right? That's like this the sign of virility in youth. Um, and same with drinking. Drinking has often typically been the purview of young men and also young male rituals, whether it's, you know, bachelor parties or football or, right, just like, you know, Friday night and darts, right? It is very much... Um, about masculinity and so there was this way that straight edge seemed to be a reconfiguring of masculinity and so where you had this kind of reinforcement of hyper masculinity through music and dance you had this really interesting subversion of it through straight edge right and it's kind of why, again it's still centered masculinity so of course you know we'll do without what we want. But, but there was this way of kind of asserting that masculinity doesn't have to be the stereotypical notion of drinking, smoking, right, doing drugs and getting laid. It can be this assertion that, um, you know, I care about myself, my body and those around me. And so I'm not going to do any of this. I've got the
0: edge. And, and this really leads to, um, we talked about a little before, but like, that embodying of masculinity in all the ways right you talked a bit about performance but also for you know not only for the bands but those within the scene right um Mm -hmm. to like we mentioned the philly fighting and you have that here right (laughs) but like starting fights um you know a lot of a lot of, you know, half naked bodies, slam dancing, all right. Like, so, Mm -hmm. so there's a lot of this. So can you talk about how the role, right? So that comes out in the music, but it's also super important to the creation of this space and scene.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, the, the body itself is, is this site a struggle, right? So you have this idea that this, there's this, subversive masculinity going on the straight edge and like what you're not going to consume in your body. But then you also have how, is how your body is gonna perform in the world, right? And so you have, you know, fashion, right? And this idea of, you know, straight or not just straight edge but hardcore more specifically was about, you know, shaved heads, that was kind of the look, right? It went from the kind of skater, long hair to this militaristic kind of, right? Haircut, the buzz cut which they could get mistaken for, you know, Marines that were walking around. I mean, not in the other ways (laughs) that they were dressed. But then, of course, you had the dress itself, right? The kind of um, dress that kind of has been stereotypically categorized as punk, right? With chains and spikes and safety pins. But they served a practical, you know, role as well. And that's that those same Georgetown Marines who they might look like Tried to kick the shit out of these these hardcore kids for looking like freaks. Right, we're so used to. I mean, my four year old has a mohawk, right? Like, and that's not that weird anymore. Like, of course he has a mohawk. Um, but when you saw that in the you know in the early 1980s, you crossed the street. Like, you did not want to be around that person. Um, and that was older generations. Whereas other were like, who are these freaks? And so you had these kind of symbols of violence, right? That were, yes, absolutely were an assertion, right, of dominance, of violence, a threat, but they were also a response to the real kind of physical threat um, that they faced on kind of a day-to-day basis. So you had definitely this, that kind of hyper-masculinity in hair, um, in body, as you said, right, like, and part of it has to do with, like, you were in these, where they were performing, there wasn't, like, a lot of air conditioning, right, like, and, and, and it was a show, so, yes, there would be, you know, shirts stripped off, bodies kind of glistening. And there was very much this, I mean, you know, to to play hardcore and to be a hardcore fan is super physical. It really is. And there is this kind of endurance and dominance that you need to climb up onto the stage and stage uh, stage dive or walk on people's heads, um, which my husband says is the thing he misses most about hardcore um, and being old, Um, right? Like it takes a lot of force. And so there's absolutely this idea of, of the hyper-masculinity that, that the body performed in the music, in the scene, in in the dancing, right? Or dancing is a loose kind of word, I think, right? But in this kind of expression, right, of music, this kind of physical expression of music that would go on at the
0: shows. No, I also have... Um... After, I mean, it was after this. So when Henry, when he had the Henry Rollins band, he, I still remember to this day this tour shirt that, like, to me says everything. It was like, "Be strong, get stronger," right? Mm-hmm. Like that idea of like this is the goal, right? You know that physicality is super like, and 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 owning and being in that space, and that, like you said before, is very. A very sense of masculine, right? Men are taught to take up the space. Mm-hmm. And you see this sort of happening in the slam dancing, um, in these ways in which um, these men, like you talk about, are able to move and be and just take up space. Um, mm-hmm. Which sometimes, yes, makes it another way where even if women are invited in, women are not taught to make take up space in those same ways. Yeah.
1: And it, and it, and it doesn't feel quite as safe. I mean, even right? Like if you're on the outskirts, I mean, I remember, I don't know, 10 years ago seeing a, a new iteration of Dead Kennedy's, right? But I, I had a friend who, who was the new lead singer and I went to visit and I was trying to get like, you know, near the front. And I just got like elbowed right, right in the ribs and like had this tear. I mean, it was, and this is like 2000s, right? So this is way past the scene. And it just, it, it feels like, um, a, an intentional statement. And again, whether or not it's intentional, that's the that's the effect that it has and that becomes important to think about. And and that and that assertion of, of masculinity of taking up space I think was also in reaction to them feeling like they they couldn't or didn't in other areas of their lives, right? Like at their high school, in their way of being in DC. And so it was like a it was not only socially and culturally taught but then also a personal reaction to this where they were. And
0: and so for you right so you set this up and you bring us into this and um but as we said before this scene did not last decades, right? Like there yeah. was, you know, very early on um there was a bit of a transformation, uh, you know, collapse of these bands moving into um right and mm-hmm. and, and as I usually say in these, when I talk to folks about <laughs> punk, I, you know, I blame Ronald Reagan for most of it, right? Like, because it, is, right? and it all comes back to like, yeah. what was going on? And so can you talk a little bit about that, right? What happens after 1983 and this sort of um, transformation and the change in this?
1: Yeah, I think there's, I think there's a lot of factors, right? One is Minor set breaks up, right? And and it seems like that shouldn't even necessitate a complete, and it doesn't necessarily, you know, write the end of DC Hardcore. But they were so important to the scene, and part of why they broke up was this kind of um, outsider view that they were they were back together again just for money, right? Which was, but also, and I think this links to one of the second reasons they start to move apart musically. And hardcore is a pretty rigid sound, right? Like it doesn't really invite for much evolution. Um, like this is the way that it's supposed to be played, right? This is the way that it's supposed to sound. And so that rigidity kind of, I think, spelled itself. I don't, I don't want to say it's doom because I do think right hardcore still and my husband would kill me if I said right. We always often argue about when when the heyday of hardcore is right, but but definitely in its form in DC right spelled the end of it there. Um and 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 everyone kind of in minor threat wanted to move in other directions. I think the external aspects were also really important. Um and part of that was also this idea of violence right. D.C. had become known as, like, a scene that is not afraid to kick some ass, right? And what happened is that people started coming to the scene just to participate in violence. And so violence became not a reaction to what was, you know, what this scene perceived as kind of, you know, an attack on them, but became like the purpose first and foremost. And that was not what the original people kind of hardcore scene was supposed to be. Um, And so, and then I think absolutely, I mean, part of it had to do with these young kids were getting older, right? And as they got older, I think there was this more, you know, realization that we do live in DC, we are at the center of power, and maybe we need to pay more attention, and they did, right, to the overt politics, and yes, Reagan, right? I mean, the these kind of disastrous um, policies that he was implementing, there was much more of a feel that like, this is something that we as a community should be reacting to. Um, and so I think that all spelled. You know uh, this this evolution and transformation, and so this so the music of DC I think started to slowly change, and I'm sure there are some who would get into a spirited argument with me, right, whether or not like we should put Scream as hardcore or post-hardcore, right, or Marginal Man, but really to me, it, you know, it became you know the addition of um, you know different instruments, like right? the influences of these different sounds started into this post-hardcore slash and everyone hates this label but emo (laughs) sound which makes like a whole generation of people gag and then a whole other generation be like oh that was my youth and childhood um but it was a different generation so and, and, and i think that that right like that sound started reflecting those exterior things that were going on so hardcore like you know it evolved and it spread and it dissipated throughout the country in different in different ways, and I think made its mark on all of these different genres. Um, but I don't think, I don't think it could have ever lasted in DC for any longer. You know what I mean? I think that the scene, as it's the music itself, but also this community, as they grew up and as they moved on, so too did the scene and the music.
0: Right. And that makes right. That makes sense. Do you mm-hmm. see or like? Or maybe I should ask it this way. What do you see as some of those then, like, really lasting influences mm. on not only, you know, punk and hardcore, but just the music scene in general? What do you see that, like, from this this moment in time, like, how has this influenced how we think about music and, like, participation in scenes?
1: Yeah, I think... I think still many people don't know about DC hardcore, but when they learn about it, it starts to make sense with so many of the other musics, right? Um, I teach a music class um, at, at George Mason University, right, and I always, of course, make them <laughs> listen to it since you know, I'm like, okay, here. Yeah. And this summer was the first time I'd had any students who had ever heard them, right? I was, I was, I was just like, holy crap, this is amazing. Um, but I think that, like it brings those sounds. Are not radical anymore. Um, I so I used to teach at the Corcoran College of Art and Design, which has been since subsumed by another university, by George Washington University. And they had, and it's a an, you know it's an, um, it's an art museum that is also an art school. And they had an exhibit on DC punk and hard uh, on DC hardcore and go go. Um, and I remember taking my parents to it. My mom was kind of looking at the exhibits and I I this is when we still had iPods. Um, and I put in, I was like, why don't you listen? Um I I put a mix on for you so you can listen to hardcore while you go around. And I it was Bad Brain's pay to come. And she's like looking and she's like nodding, bobbing her head, and she's like, Oh, I like this. And I was like, holy shit. <laughs> like, <laughs> my mother is saying this. That clearly shows this idea that, you know, what was abrasive and ferocious and ostracizing sound has so become part of the sound of, like, alternative rock as a whole that my mom was like, oh, this sounds good. It's got a good beat, right? Like, there was just a perfect, you know... um, yeah. Like coming together of this music has its fingers in, you know, alternative rock and, 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 has to do and, and, right. Like in the, in the mountains and Sonic Youth. Right. And it has its fingers in grunge. Of course, Dave Grohl, who was, who played for in scream before he went to, to Seattle and Nirvana. I mean, Riot girl. Absolutely. Right. That would, that Ian was very invested in, um, not financially, right, but but kind of socially and culturally. I mean, I think we see those those tentacles reach wide, and I think straight edge is one of also the long lasting legacies. I think it is such a still vibrant and important community for so many um, that that is something that will always be one of the imp- most important legacies of DC hardcore.
0: So one of the things I wanted to ask you about at the end yeah. of your book, right? So we talk about these sort of lasting legacies. You have a discography, right? And it's not just mm-hmm. these bands. So I just wanted to, like, what made you choose the band set? Yeah, You don't have to go through everything in there, but, right, you have, <laughs> you know, like, you have, like, bad brains in here and government issue and minor threat, but you also have, like, some you know, classic, maybe more classic um punk mm-hmm. or or punk adjacent. I mean, I would call Patty Smith punk, but like who knows, somebody else might right. not. <laughs> um, and the Velvet Underground as well. So like what brought like were there certain <laughs> Yeah. Well and this is actually a good point because this is like a chapter that got cut out of the book, right? <laughs> and that
1: was more about the evolution of sound, right? And so, you know, hardcore wouldn't exist without without proto-punk and kind of without I mean obviously rock and roll but but kind of the more you know it's absolutely they're like very like shh, kind of blurry lines between what do we call you know velvet underground but I don't think there would be you know hardcore without velvet underground right like I think that like dissonance right and and kind of experimentation and even though it's it's so far apart on so many things. I mean, that's very kind of art rock, right? Velvet Underground. And, you know, hardcore would be like, fuck that. Like, that is not something that we agree with. It's almost too, almost progressive Rocky. But still, I think those attitudes and those kernels of sound become really important. So I think of it a little bit as kind of this the chapter that got removed. (laughs) right? So like the evolution of sound, you know, through the 60s to the seventies. And then that, that comes up to DC hardcore. Mm-hmm.
0: So this book is it, is it out yet? Or is it just coming like September I, 28th? Okay. Perfect. <laughs> we, so it comes out September 28th, end of the month. So, I mean, I usually like my, my final question is usually like, what are you working? If there's anything else you're working on now, which I mean, you <laughs> might be, um, but, or if there's any other, anything happening with the book that you sort of want to promote and put out there. In this era
1: of COVID, unfortunately, I don't have as very much planned for it. But, you know, I'm, I, I'm just kind of, you know, I've been working a little bit more and on social justice issues on, on social media, but I've been thinking about like how I want to bring it back to music. And so, you know, I, I, I don't know yet. I haven't started the next project. I've given myself a break. Um but I'm I'm really kind of thinking like I want to see like how this notion of music and scene and community right gets so changed and, and transforms and evolves through um, social media. So I, I I'm it's just percolating in my head and <laughs> will perhaps come as a full form thought sometime soon. <laughs>
0: Well, it has been really amazing talking to you about. Um, I mean, we could probably talk forever, but we've been talking yeah. a while. Um, but again, this was Shana Maskell, who's the author of Politics is Sound, the Washington, D.C. Hardcore Scene from 1978 to 1983. Shana, thanks so much for talking with me on New Books Network.
1: Thank you so much for having me. This is so much fun.